You're listening to Plane Talk with Thomas and Clay. Hello and welcome to Plane Talk with Thomas and Clay. I'm Clay. And this is Thomas. And you're listening to Plane Talk. Today we have a very special guest to uh, with us today. It's uh, Mr. Bob Schroeder. And uh, he is a captain with United Airlines and happens to be Thomas's father. And he's going to be talking to us today about his transformation from private pilot on up into the airlines. And uh, Thomas has some questions for him. Go ahead, Tom. So uh, with any pilot, we always like to start at the beginning. So what was your initial spur to create your love of aviation? Well, that is an interesting question. Like so many interests through our childhood or childhoods, we find that there is no actual specific point. I look back at mine and I think it probably had to do with uh, the fact that my father used to take me to Hobby Airport and like all small kids, throw threw me on his shoulders and uh, I watched airplanes down at Hobby Airport. Uh, and then over time, it just seemed to be an evolution of interest. And since I have an interest in um, the mechanics, of um, any machine uh, there was an easy transition into being a pilot um, and that was kind of the slow evolution uh, then through as I got older my interests moved around with cars and other types of machines um, and eventually back into aviation okay and uh, we know that with with a lot of people most people uh, assume that the dream of being a pilot is is kind of far-fetched and hard to achieve uh, was your first career pursuit aviation, or did you did you start out at something else and end up in aviation? Well, interestingly enough, I had always had an interest in aviation, but there was a period of time. And if you go back in history and you look, for example, after the Vietnam War, there were a lot of pilots who were out of jobs. So looking at the late 70s, um, there weren't many pilot jobs. So that precludes, or I should say reduces your interest because when there are not many job openings, you kind of lose interest. Uh, but then as time changed through the 80s uh, and then into the early 90s, uh, times changed and um, you could see the industry changing. Uh, there was a greater need for pilots uh, it seems like more people were flying, and so it was a fairly easy transition um, back into having an interest in becoming a pilot. Now, what's interesting is if you look at the history going all the way back to the 1950s, every decade seems to have changes, whether it's due to growth in the industries, changes in the economy, changes in the airline in industry. For example, in the 1950s, we went from propellers to jet engines. So that was a significant change to the interest of young, uh, young men wanting to be pilots and primarily as they came out of the military. So, and as you watch going in through the 80s, uh, there was a greater interest in flying just because of the increase in opportunity. Just from uh, talking to a lot of pilots working at an FBO, uh, there's been a lot of, of people that I've, I've met and uh, talked to and had discussions with that have ended up either that, that really have started out in the military. Do you uh, experience a lot of pilots that have gone from uh, military experience to commercial? Well, in the early days, especially after World War II, there primarily were all pilots uh, from the military. There were some civilian 
And then once you saw, or as the Korean conflict ended, there was a reduced amount of military pilots. So for the airlines to fill that need, they started looking towards the civilian pilots. Uh, Vietnam came along, same situation after the war was over, lots of pilots from the military. Uh, and then as that pool of pilots uh, shrunk, they found that in the 80s, they needed more civilian pilots, or excuse me, in the 70s, they needed more civilian pilots, uh, and that shrunk down in the 80s also. Interestingly enough, as the late 90s, early 2000s came along, even the civilian pilot ranks um, have to grow even more because the military is using drones. So it's very cyclical as to how many military pilots are in the industry. If you look at the seniority lists of airlines, if you look at it historically, you can see where there's groupings of military pilots and then there will be groupings of civilian pilots. But if you look at it, you can see some changes and it all goes back to the eras uh, when there were wars or pilots, uh, wars were ending and pilots were coming out of the military. Now, to be honest with you, there are a lot less military pilots. It's uh, more dominant uh, civilian pilots. I believe that might be due to the increasing deficit of pilots in the industry. Um, the, the military is, is paying more and uh, requiring longer contracts to keep their pilots before they lose them to the commercial industry. Uh, it's, it's a very interesting uh, transgression. Um, so what we really like to talk about is your experience as a commercial pilot. So we'll really start from the beginning. Um, uh, when did you start flight school? Uh, January of 1989 uh, is when I started my first flight, um, completed my private, uh, a, a private pilot certificate, uh, then obtained a, an instrument rating. Uh, continued on to become a commercial pilot. And then, interestingly enough, I chose to become a flight instructor before I obtained a multi-engine rating. Was a flight instructor for three years, three months, and then uh, started flying commercially in April of 1994. What flight school did you go to? Well, the flight school no longer exists. It was a college down in Pasadena, Texas. And that particular flight school had a program that was associated with Continental Express. And although that flight school no longer exists, a lot of pilots um, went through the flight school. Ironically, the flight school started, I want to say, somewhere in the late 40s, early 50s. And the flight school is no longer here either. It finally uh, discontinued training uh, along with the college program. Interestingly enough, I actually looked at the flight school that he went to. It was at uh, San Jacinto College. Um, when I initially put in my application to become a flight student, uh, they had a change of directors and... Uh, it turned out that the previous director hadn't maintained flight records, and once they got the new one, they uh, ended up terminating the program, teaching out the students that were already there, and that's how I actually ended up at TSTC in Waco. You started out in San Jacinto, and as I would mentioned in the, uh, the first podcast, I talked about how regionals are trying to get their hands into flight schools by creating programs such as ambassadorships and cadet programs like American Eagle, Envoy, and Republic Airlines. And that's, that's really a big incentive to 
push students into becoming commercial uh, commercial pilots, but that's not really the only route you can take as a pilot. As we had mentioned, that there are corporate jobs, um, there's ag jobs, there's uh, Part 135 operations, which are charters, Part 91, which would allow you to hold out and um, just pick up jobs here and there. What was your reasoning to pursue a commercial aviation? Well, I looked, uh, before I pursued the commercial aviation, I honestly looked at maybe even being a mechanic as opposed to a pilot. When I sat down and looked at the opportunities, I looked at the type of aircraft, the companies, the places to fly, the income. There was a whole list of reasons why I chose to just go ahead and become a pilot. What's pretty standard, uh, at least now, being a current flight student, we train primarily in 172s. Uh, some flight schools use the Diamonds. Uh, what was uh, what did you train in? Well, at this particular flight school, we had approximately 15, plus or minus a few. They were the uh, Cessna 152, the small two-seater. They were very good primary trainers. Uh, when it came to instrument training, we flew in 72s, uh, Cessnas. And they were, remember, this was the early 1990s. EFIS, or Electronic Flight Information Systems, they were not prevalent. They were just coming out in that decade. Some commercial airlines had them. Most flight schools did not. Um, and so our the little Cessna 172s that we did instrument flying with were what we call the traditional stack or the steam gauges, as they're affectionately known. Um, and so we trained on those. Uh, and then when it came time for the multi-engine, there were several aircraft. There was a, <laughs> a 1957 Apache uh, PA-23 160 horsepower model, and or you had the option of a Beach 76 Duchess. So there were a couple of options. And uh, as you progressed through your flight training, you obviously got your private pilot, uh, got your instrument rating, commercial certificate, went and got your CFI before your multi, double I, MEI, all of that. Once you became a CFI, I'm sure as, as any pilot at this point would want to do is, is they set their goals for either corporate aviation or commercial aviation. The reason you chose Continental Express, was it because of the reach, uh, the outreach program uh, that uh, San Jack had? It primarily was. Uh, that particular program gave opportunities. That was my first reason for pursuing them. Once I was in the program, I actually found that I enjoyed being a flight instructor, at least for a reasonable period of time. The main reason, uh, besides, I should say, that I was interested in Continental Express other than their program was because it's, it's a Houston-based airline or was in its day. It no longer exists. And having family and living in the Houston area myself, I felt that it was a good choice. Yeah, and that could be a very important factor. A lot of pilots, when it comes down to picking their their airline or their regional, they try and find one that's close to where their home base is. And, uh, so I, d I have a question for you. What if if you were to go into it today? What what advice would you give somebody who's just starting out who wants to end up at United and fly the thirty seven or eighty seven and go on to the the bigger, better things in in, in United? What what kind of advice would you give them just starting out from nothing or starting out with just a private pilot license? I think that in today's environment, there are a lot more opportunities than there were during my day, and it's like I had said uh, or mentioned previously, it's very cyclical. 
throughout the decades. If I were to start today, I think uh, I would primarily focus on a good flight school. Now, there are various flight schools in the country, and they have various types of equipment. Uh, there are several factors as a student you should be looking for. One, there are two types of flight schools, part 141 and part 61. That's a personal choice. If you're going to go to the airlines, you need to think about a college degree. Most part 61 schools are not associated with college degrees. Most part 141 schools are associated with a college degree. It doesn't mean that a 61, you cannot get a degree. They're just not normally associated with them. Uh, so I would choose the 141 if you had a good flight school with good equipment. The other side of it is just because it's a 141 school doesn't mean they have good aircraft. And that doesn't mean unsafe. That just means quality uh, avionics uh, uh, and equipment to fly something that's fairly new you're better you're better off training a new aircraft just because you get exposed to the newer technology than you are in a flight school that has older aircraft and there is no requirement for age of aircraft uh, at either of the flight schools um, a lot of the 141 schools will not provide you with a bachelor's degree so you need to make sure that the associate's degree that you receive from a flight school will either transfer or allow you to transition into a college that will provide you with at least a bachelor's degree. Most of the airlines, well, basically all the airlines are looking for a bachelor's degree along with your certificates and ratings. So that would be my first suggestion. Find a good flight school with good equipment that allows a college degree to be obtained uh, at the end of your training. Awesome. Thank you. And sure. just, just to add on to that, uh, TSTC within the recent year has made a, a strong movement towards uh, upgrading their equipment. So, for example, we're using uh, glass in their steam. And as, as uh, Bob had mentioned before, that, that steam is really like a clock while glass is more electronic. Or it, it is electronic. And uh, we've started making a strong movement to push for... Uh, electronic engine management systems and uh, we use all uh, you know electronic navigational systems like the G650 and the G430 with WAS uh, and that's uh, he made a lot of really good points so the, the flight school you really look forward uh, to getting into a big part of it is going to be their equipment because that's how it's really going to affect your training and the airlines at this point, really, all the old, outdated, uh, like the 733s, uh, they're, they're primarily steam. While um, you fly, uh, you fly primarily the 739, 738s? Yes. Um, when I first started with Continental, uh, I started on the 737, and that was in 1997. And in that period of time, they actually had 737 100s and 200s and 300s. None of them had any EFAS involved. Shortly after I was hired, uh, somewhere in close time period, they obtained what's called the 737-500. And it was um, EFAS. It had a two, what we call a two-tube EFAS, meaning you had a top EFAS tube, which provided you with your um, instrumentation, such as the attitude indicator, uh, and then a lower EFAS, which was primarily 
uh, DG, RMI, however you want to look at it. It was primarily for uh, uh, lateral tracking, say tracking a localizer or a back course or VOR. Those had EPIS. And after the 737-500, Boeing started building all their 737s, starting with the 700 and 800. They were 100% EFAS. Uh, there were no more what we call steam gauges, as we said earlier. And then, of course, the 737-900 is all EFAS. Uh, they won't even build aircraft with the old gauges. There's just really no reason to. They're, interestingly enough, EFIS not only provides better information, it not only provides uh, more clarity for the pilot to digest mentally the information to determine what the aircraft's doing, it actually saves a lot of weight. Uh, those old gauges and equipment on board were quite heavy, and so that's obviously a fuel savings uh, process for the airlines. Now, looking past flight school, obviously you became a flight instructor. Is that the only thing that you did or did you pursue other venues such as picking up flights to take people from point A to point B uh, or anything like that? Uh, I did. There was, in addition to my flight instruction, there were several small businesses that had small aircraft. For example, um, I used to fly a Piper Aztec which essentially is a Piper Apache, just much larger, 250 horse engines each side, fuel injected, uh, really nice airplane. Not too fast, but uh, you could certainly load it up and go places. And then I also flew Seneca 2, Seneca 3. I flew Golden Eagles. So I had an opportunity to do what they call pilot services. Basically, it's just somebody or some small business that needs the people flown around you have to be a commercial pilot to do it, and you have to know the aircraft and be able to fly it. Simply put, they call you up and say, we want to fly to a destination. Uh, you meet them, you do all your flight planning preparation, check the weather, and you fly them to the destination. They pay you for your service. It's basic pilot services, uh, and all falls under Part 91. Now we're going to move on to your experiences flying as a regional and the progression towards becoming commercial pilot. So if you wouldn't mind, we'd like to hear your experiences flying for Continental Express, what it was you flew. Um, and what we'd really like to do is provide a comparative analysis between the way pilots were treated, you know, back in the late 90s, early 2000s versus how United treats you now. Well, first off, the 1990s, there were a lot of extra pilots. Uh, the regionals, I'm just going to say that their philosophy on hiring pilots was completely different than today. In the early 90s, there were a lot of extra pilots. There were not many jobs. Uh, in the early 90s, the economy was, well, frankly, not doing anything special. Uh, the airlines were not growing. Uh, a lot of the airlines were using a philosophy of uh, what we call uh, reduced to profitability, I mean they were actually getting smaller, believing they could become more profitable. So there were no jobs. So what the airlines were able to do, and primarily the commuters, as we used to call them, we really didn't start regionals. And a little side note, 
commuters, regionals, and majors, they really get their name based on their income. That's primarily where that term comes from. But the commuters are traditionally small, twin-engine propellered aircraft. And Continental Express flew all turboprops. And most of those commuters, uh, they did not pay well. Uh, They were not very desirable. Um, It was tough to get hired by them. And that is absolutely 100% opposed to the opportunities that are available now. Not only are the commuters primarily regionals, with the exception of a few, you're no longer flying many turboprops. Most of them are regional jets. Uh, they're signing bonuses, much more opportunity, and there is a strong hiring phase that is happening now and has been going on for quite a few years. Transitioning from the ATR to the 737, progressing from a commuter airline to a major airline, was there a lot of differences in the way you were treated versus how you're treated now? It is, and it has so much to do with economics. Uh, It also has to do with the company, and it actually has quite often has to do with whether you're there is a union involved in the uh, pilot group. Going back to Continental Express, I started out on the ATR-42 as a first officer for about a year and a half, Um, and then the captain on the Beach 1900 for about a year and a half, and then the regional jet for about nine months. During that period of time, we went from a non-union to a union regional. And so there were significant changes during that period. There were improvements in the scheduling. There were improvements in the pay. But during that period from 1994 to 1997, there were some definite improvements. Saying that, you have to recognize that the regionals are different from the major airlines. Uh, So looking at... Flying as a commercial pilot, how has that affected your lifestyle? Average about how many hours do you fly progressing from a junior FO to a senior captain? I uh, would, would really, ju- I think us and our viewers would like to hear about uh, your experiences flying for United Airlines. Well, uh, interestingly enough, um, once I left Continental Express and went to Continental Airlines. I was there until the merger in 2010 with United Airlines. Flying for Continental was actually a very good job. You flew a lot, pay was reasonable. Probably downside is like any airline pilot, you're gone from home quite a bit. The interesting part of the merger with Continental Airlines and United Airlines, United Airlines was not what we would consider a good paying airline, but they had very good schedules. Continental actually paid better, but you were gone more and there were a lot busier schedules. So once the merger happened, we basically took two benefits, each of the airlines, and created a much more cohesive contract with the company. And so in effect, once the merger happened, uh, the lifestyle is quite a bit better. Basically, your standard month is flying between 80 and 85 hours. You're gone anywhere from uh, 15 to 18 days a month. And it's primarily your choice how much you want to fly. Taking the route that you did, is that something that you would recommend to aspiring pilots? Well, interestingly enough, there really are only two routes. One is civilian and one is military. Uh, The route I took worked for me. 
I don't know that I would have changed it. I'm not sure what I would have changed to make it better. The military route now is a little different. There's so many drone programs. And like you said earlier, they're keeping a lot of pilots in for longer. They're extending their time with the military. Uh, the civilian route right now really is the better bet. It allows you to uh, get hired on with the regional with less hours. The training's better. The equipment's better. I think there's a lot more opportunity now. So I would not I would not change the process that I use to get to the airlines. Well, we're about to wrap this up. So thank you very much for your time. And hopefully we'll hear from you again. You're welcome. Thank you, guys. You're very welcome. Have a good day. You, you as well. Well, uh, I think uh, that was a lot of great information uh, talking about uh, getting into the airlines. What do you think, Thomas? It's very good. And uh, I think you provided a lot of information. Uh, comparative analysis between what it was like uh, becoming a pilot, uh, you know, back in the late 80s, early 90s to, you know, how we're experiencing flight schools now with the deficit of pilots. And uh, it's a very good field to get into. So if you have any questions for us, uh, feel free to comment and please leave us a review down in iTunes. If you're listening to us on Spotify, give us a follow. Uh, For this week, I'm Clay. This is Thomas. And you've been listening to Plane Talk. Thanks for listening to Plane Talk. If you like what you heard, give us a review on iTunes, a follow on Spotify, or leave us a comment over on Anchor. We'll be releasing new podcasts every Wednesday and Saturday.